For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Now, on today's episode, we have got on a singer, an author, founder of a charity called Starchild, and this is Michaela Foster Marsh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Zippy. It's lovely to be here. Happy to have you on. So I've done a real brief intro right there, but for people who may not be familiar with who you are, tell them a little bit about you and what you do. Well, as you said, I'm a singer, a songwriter, and I have three albums, most of which were recorded in Canada, where I lived for about 18 years. And most recently, I went into the world of of writing. Well, not really recently. I mean, it takes such a long time to write a book, but I've now got three books that I've written. And the first one to be published is actually my memoir. Uh, It's a very candid memoir about growing up with um, my adopted Ugandan brother, Frankie, Mm -hmm. um, in the late 60s until he died at the age of 27 in a house fire. And um, 18 years after, I ended up finding his family in Uganda. It was a a bit of a long pilgrimage to get there, but I decided I wanted to to find the family in Uganda. And I've been doing a lot of writing about a fictional character, very loosely based on his mother, who gave him up for adoption. And after my mum died, I came across all the paperwork. Um, My family had all gone by that point. And I came across the paperwork in Frankie's adoption. And it just set my imagination going. Mm -hmm. And um, for many years, it just seemed like I wasn't meant to go. And the universe definitely has its own timing on things. And I speak about that in the book. But um, so 18 years later, I found myself in Uganda. And through nothing short of a miracle, just miraculous, divine synchronicities, the things that happened, um, I ended up meeting his family and now have three adopted Ugandan brothers. You know, I call them my brothers. They call me their sister. Um, So... From there, I then set up a charity in memory of my brother, having seen some of the poverty and met a lot of people out there in Uganda. I didn't want to just meet them and then leave and just come back. So it just took on its own life. And since then, I've been running the Starchild Charity. Um, 
and it's just it's gone from strength to strength. We built a school for creative arts in Uganda. Mm -hmm. We work with there's about 110 kids at that school, and then we're in the process of building a sanctuary for children with autism and disabilities, because in Uganda. The stigmas and myths surrounding children with um, disabilities and autism is, is pretty horrendous. Mm -hmm. So we've been working in that area as well now and in memory of my, my beloved partner, Ronnie, who died last year. So, um, yeah, working a way through a lot of, of grief with that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's good to have the focus of, of the charity and then to be able to do the work in memory of, of Ronnie, just like I did with with Frankie. Yeah. Okay. Well, so there, there, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Well, there's, there's a lot there. So there's a lot to go, go more in depth on. So tell us a little bit more about your, your backstory. So you, you grew up in Glasgow. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we grew up, I grew up with, um, with a black brother who was adopted. He was my twin. We were mm -hmm. pushed around, um, Scotland and Glasgow in a twin pram in 1968 which was highly unusual i mean people just hadn't seen um transracial adoption at that point mm. but my parents hadn't set out to adopt um a black child they had put on the application form that they would take a hard to place child meaning a child maybe with a disability or an older child mm -hmm. and the adoption agency came back and said, well, actually, we have a little black boy who's been here for 13 months and he's hard to place. Would you consider, you know, a, a black child? And my parents said, well, they didn't really care about the, the colour of the child's skin as long as they felt there was a bond with the child. Mm -hmm. So they went out to visit Frankie at Tanker Hall um, Children's Home in Kilmarnock, just outside Glasgow. And I think it was love at first sight. <laughs> um, but the adoption agency were very concerned that Frankie and I were identical in age. There was only four weeks between us. Okay. So they thought there could be territorial issues and, you know, they had to be careful with that. So um, I did have an older brother, eight years older, but Frankie and I, that was the main concern was around, you know, us bonding. So he came as a foster and there was no territorial issues at all. Um, I mean, from what my mum said, I just guided him around like a little mother. And so the adoption went through very quickly within a year. But I suppose if we think back to that time, it, it was very brave of my parents because at that point there was all the tensions in the civil rights movement in, in um, America. Martin Luther King had just been... Um, assassinated mm. and mm. I guess my parents took a kind of very quiet anti-racism stance and, and adopted Frankie at a time when it was like I say very it was very unusual to see a black and a white child together sure and sure. and black sure. children being introduced I mean transracial adoption has become increasingly I guess more popular and acceptable but at that time um, I think it was unusual I wouldn't have said that we suffered a tremendous amount of racism, to be honest, at that at that point. It was curiosity. People were really curious as to why there was this black child with a white child, you know, milk yeah. bottle, white, yeah. freckly skinned child and, and this black. So people would stop my mum in the street and they'd want to hold Frankie, they'd want to hug him and touch him and, and touch his hair. And, and um, I think that for mum, if I'm honest, which I, I mean, I, I am in the book, I talk quite openly about this. My mum's difficulty, I don't think she expected that. 
and wasn't prepared for that. And I think that for her, she she had just not long had me. So if you think about it from a, a new mother's point of view, and then everybody's looking at her black child and, and ignoring her own child. I mean, I'm not looking for the sympathy vote here. It's just that for my mum, I don't think she expected so much of it to be, you know, grab so much attention. Mm. And she'd be thinking, why are people not looking at Michaela? They're all looking at Frankie. Um, and so that was a uh, it was quite difficult for her. But these are all uh, there's a, a lot of things I cover in the book about adoption itself and some of the traumas. And, and my my um, father was adopted, and my ex husband were adopted, and obviously Frankie. So I do cover a bit about adoption in the book as well, and about the abandonment issues and things. And sometimes, you know, the parents the difficulties some parents can have. And again, I'm, I'm I'm not really I'm not an expert on racism, and I'm not out to I've got no political motivation in this. I couldn't have predicted the timing of the book, you know, for it to have come out now is mm. is quite bizarre. But then if if you read the book, the timing of everything, the way the the universe, God synced it all up, is just absolutely astounding. And I think that's what people are finding so amazing about the book. But obviously because of you know that the the political state at the moment and the racism and where we're at and the, the hark back to 68 um at that time mm-hmm. and my parents having adopted frankie at that time and then looking at what what's happening now in the world i suppose the timing is quite incredible but little did we know you know or when i was writing the book that that this would be you know, even remotely getting talked about. I mean, I remember saying to people, you know, my parents had taken a sort of quiet anti-racism stance in 68 by adopting Frankie, and it kind of just went over people's heads. They weren't really what was going on in 68, you know. It, it didn't really arouse people's interest. And now suddenly it's become something that people are hooking onto with the book. And yet the book is so, so much more. But yes, it does obviously touch on the racism that, that we experienced, but also the grace that mm-hmm. we experienced mm-hmm. and, the, and the blessings and the, and the wonderful, oh, just what a wonderful story. Yeah, you know, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story. And amongst all this other um, angst and, and um, you know, anger that's, that's it's around, I hope that it, it shows another side to that. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, so of course, this is this is going back a while now. So I mean, Growing up in Glasgow, I guess through the 70s, through the 80s, um, having a, a black brother, what was the what was your experience like? So you've talked a little bit about what it was like for your mother and perhaps the family when you were at a baby. But of course, we don't we don't really remember being babies at all. We we hear the stories and everything like that. But from when you were, I guess, getting a little bit older, you know, four or five, and then, of course, growing up, going to school, going through your teens, et cetera, what was your, of course, I know this is, uh, this will all be in the book, but what was your experience like? Um, what was your experience like? And what was your brother Frankie's experience like? Well, like you say, you know, I don't have memory of my first memory. I don't remember looking at Frankie going, oh, you're black. You're different from me. You know, I, it, it, that the children aren't born with that sense. It's just he's my playmate. He's in a pram with me and we do everything together. Probably the first time that I realized there was an issue or that Frankie felt different was when we were in the bathtub together. 
and we were about five years old. We used to get uh, in the same bathtub. And he turned around to my mum and said, if I scrub really hard, will I become white like Michaela? Oh. And I mean, even at five, my five-year-old sensitivities or sensibilities recognised that, you know, Frankie feels different here. Mm. And I mean, I remember turning around and saying, oh, I hate my freckles. I wish I could scrub my freckles <laughs> off. And that was the truth. I really did. You know, I, I didn't like my freckles. I used to hate my freckles. And mum would say they're a sign of beauty. So mum went on and, and sort of explained to Frankie that, you know, about the melanin in the skin and how he had so much more melanin in his skin. And that's, you know, his biological family came from Africa and it was very hot there. And, you know, Michaela has this uneven distribution of mel- melanin in her skin. And, you know, that's that's why you're black and you you know you can't basically scrub that away and why would you want to and be proud and everything and I remember my mum talking about Africa and me becoming really fascinated by the fact that my brother came from this exotic country she made it sound so exotic and I think then at that point in my life I was almost getting prepared that I was going to go to Africa one day. Mm-hmm. You know, this was part of where I wanted to go because I had so much curiosity around Frankie. But the thing was that Frankie did not have that curiosity. What happened was, I remember we my, my, we get sat down, my dad one night brought out this folder and he said to Frankie and myself, we were always included in the conversation, did Frankie want to know anything about his African family and before he came to us? And Frankie got quite upset and quite defensive and he said, they didn't want to know me, I don't want to know them. I, I'm, I'm Scottish, I'm not African, I don't, I don't want to go there. And my dad, you know, was very sensitive to this and he just basically said, okay, we don't have to discuss this. It's just that the, the folder's there. We don't have very much information to go on because, you know, adoption was often cloaked in secrecy at that time. So there really wasn't much to go on. But my dad said, you know, if you want to find out anything, we'll help you. Just know that that if you ever want to talk about it, we'll talk about it. And, and um, you know, the information that we have is, is here for you when you're ready. So I knew then that Frankie didn't want to talk about it. I think there might have been a fear in a 10-year-old's head that maybe he could get sent back there. Okay. You know, that maybe he would end up having to go to a country that he couldn't really identify with. Mm. At that time in his life, anyway, he, he saw himself very much Scottish. He, he had a white family and he loved us. And we were all he'd ever known. So he, he may have had, I don't know, 100% because we didn't discuss it because, again, that whole adoption thing, it was very obvious Frankie didn't want to talk about it. So it wasn't until he got older that he started to, to want to address that. But at that point, in the 10-year-old mind, it was a closed subject. And for me, I was still left going, what's in that folder? You know, mm. what I want to know about my brother's family because he was that close to me. It was like he was like my biological twin. And, you know, if, if he had these parents, then they were kind of like my parents. And so I wanted to know who they were. But I didn't talk about it. So he this he was oddly and curious about it. And yet I was so, so overly curious, really. And so I think that's where I use my imagination and the, and the, 
the book that's the second book, which actually was the first book written, but it will be published secondly. Um, but getting on a bit, when we, Frankie was very popular. He was the only black guy at secondary okay. at high school. And um, he was very comfortable in the school environment. He had a lot of friends. He didn't have a chip on his shoulder. He didn't play the victim mode at all, despite the fact that he had plenty to maybe feel, you know, a bit oppressed by. He didn't he didn't use that at all. He just a a great personality, a great sense of humor. He didn't take himself too seriously and he didn't go looking for trouble. Mm-hmm. Trouble did sometimes find us, unfortunately. Um as we got older, I think more I mean, he got pulled out of school a couple of times. He had been arrested for crimes that he didn't commit. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was, you know, he he was black. There was a, a, another guy um, who was black that hadn't, he wasn't a particularly pleasant character, unfortunately. And Frankie was always getting pulled up and arrested. And when he did, the police would just say, oh, well, they all look the same to us. Oh, wow. Okay. Because so... Terrible. Yeah, yeah, so in a situation essentially where he was like one of the only people who looked that way, then yeah, yeah, yeah no, I, I can I can understand that. That's um, that's a weird situation because it's sort of like I don't know, you know, in a way it's in a way it's racism, but also in a way it's like it, it's just sort of being a super duper minority, right? Like if yeah. you're. If you're and, uh, 10, yeah. there's another person who's six foot ten, and you're the only two people who are six foot ten, and they're looking for someone who's who's that height, then um, yeah, people make all sorts of snap judgments and prejudices and things like that, and then of course you know there can yeah. be the the races direct racism element as well. So yeah, no, I get that, but yeah, carry, carry on. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think that you know, my dad had a, a clerical collar on; he was white. I do think that the minute he went down to the police station. The, the situation got resolved very quickly. Yeah, and I I do wonder if that wasn't the case, would it be re- resolved so quickly? Mm. But my dad would very much say to Frankie, much what you're saying to me, you know, he, we try not to make a big issue of it, you know, um, and I think because we didn't make a big issue of it and didn't say, you know, or, or accuse them of being racist or anything like that, you know, it, it, the situation always seemed to calm down you know, very quickly, which I think was good and was good for Frankie as well. I mean, my my dad grew up with stigma. I mean, he was called called the local B because he was adopted and didn't know who his father was. So Mm. in the time that he grew up, he had a lot of stigma against him socially um, because of because he didn't have a father, you know, and he didn't know at that time who his mother was. Yeah. So, I mean, he had had to come up against, you know, some hardship in life as well. And and so he'd never made a big deal of it with Frankie. Um, and I think that that rubbed off on Frankie, that ability to kind of just, okay, let it roll, you know. Um, but it was embarrassing for him. And I remember being extremely upset when it happened, when he got got arrested at school and running across the telephone booth and phoning my dad in tears, and um, it wasn't it wasn't nice, it wasn't pleasant. But I agree with what you're saying. You know, when you're only in a minority like that, 
it's 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 easily done. Yeah. Um, then as we got into the clubs and the bars and the pubs, I mean, there'd be places you go in and somebody wouldn't want to serve him because of the color of his skin. You know. Yeah, and what sort what sort of timing would this be? This would be like in the this would be in the eighties, early eighties, eighties, nineties, nineties, late late eighties, nineties. Okay. Um, I mean, he died in ninety four um, at the age of twenty seven, mm. and I would have said like in our you know late late teens there was be a couple of inc- there was one incident at a party where a guy pulled a knife out. And it was the most terrifying night of my life. And I do speak about that in the book. And I do not know to this day how Frankie managed it, but he talked his way around with this guy. And um, he also had a big support group. Or he had friends that would have defended him to the death. Yeah. He was, like I say, very, very popular. So I'm talking about racism, but it was, in its, it was the minority. Mm. The majority mm. of people loved and accepted Frankie. Over 800 people came to his funeral. Wow. You know, um, you couldn't get in the church for people. Um, he wasn't famous. He was just this local guy and and, and everybody loved him. Mm. But there were people who took offense to the color of his skin. And, and you know, the, there was a last night where the, the, the knife got wielded in front of us. And and I, I don't know how Frankie managed to, to do it, but he just was like, I'm not looking for trouble, da, 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 da. And you know he 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 could fight if he had to again my father taught him how to throw a punch he he'd been in the boxing ring in his youth Mm -hmm. so um you know he was um not averse to that if necessary but he didn't go looking for trouble frankie and we were able to somehow get ourselves out of that but i was hysterical i thought he was going to be murdered yeah what what happened in that what happened in that situation because that sounds can yeah, you, I mean, that's what I'm saying. My it? memory is really shady about what happened. I get pulled out from the party yeah. and there had been there had been a, a gang, basically, that, that were kind of, you know, when I say a gang, not an official gang, just a group of kids um, mulling around and whatnot. And I think they had had far too much to drink and, you know, it was like just looking for a fight. Yeah. Um, and Frankie was there. He was, you know, they were calling him, you know, Black B and all the, the horrible language. Mm. And um, his friends had come out and somebody ran out to get me and said that, you know, somebody has, has uh, got a knife. They're going to kill Frankie, which, I mean, I was just in a terrible state. But what happened, I have no idea. I remember just kind of screaming, please leave him alone, leave him alone. He hasn't done any harm. He hasn't done you any harm. And um, anyway, that. The, the guy eventually the guys went off but the guy was standing in front of him with a knife um and frankie was just right trying to kind of calm the situation and say he wasn't looking for any trouble and his friends were just kind of saying look guys it's not worth it come on like just calm down you know and his friends tried to pull the guy their own friend away that had the knife yeah which yeah. was good you know, they could see that this was going to lead to real trouble. Yeah. But to yeah. live through that experience, it's, you know, we never told my parents. I mean, that oh, story really? is, I never told my parents because they would just have been frightened for us to have mm-hmm. gone out. And they were pretty cool about us going out to clubs and bars and everything together. And, you know, they would always say to stick together. But, and we did, you know, um, as we got older, we were we were still always together. But I think it would have just frightened them too much. So that was in our kind of late, late teens. You know, maybe we would be about 15. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then in the clubs and the bars, you kind of got a wee bit of a peripheral vision. You kind of sussed out the place. Most of the bars and clubs we went to, we knew. We knew the people, we knew the places. So we didn't feel you know, too uncomfortable. But if you went into maybe a new bar, a new place, you definitely had an awareness, let's say, you know, that there, there could be. And the first sign would be like if, if somebody's not going to serve you a drink. Mm. You know, if, if they start ignoring it, you know, ignoring you and they're serving everybody else, and you've been standing there for 20 minutes, then what we would do is just go, you know what, let's just go. Yeah. It's not yeah. worth it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like I say, he wasn't ever looking for trouble. But I think somewhere deep inside, he must have obviously felt that. And I can only speak about what I know because I'm not Frankie. Mm-hmm. And and there's enough, you know, calm black voices been given a platform today to speak about racism without me necessarily, you know, carrying that, that torch. But I, I would really like to think that the book could show a positive, you know, positive story, a beautiful story um about a child who had been adopted into a black family a white family sorry and um you know just the that that love transcended all borders and time and 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 even life itself i mean the love that i have for frankie continues today that you know the the work that we're doing in uganda is a testimony to to that and also just the the wonderful synchronicities that have brought me to to find another African family and be embraced by them all these years later. Yeah. So yeah. So so I tell think- okay. So 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 tell me more a little bit more about that aspect. So you said that you when did you first go to Uganda and what's the whole story behind how that how that all happened? What what spurred what spurred that and how did you go about doing it? It wasn't easy. Okay. Um, it took many years, like I say, but I think there I came a point where I just, you know, I, I completely surrendered to this. I mean, I had been working away mostly like a detective to some degree. As I say, after my mum died and my dad had died, then I inherited this paperwork and I saw the name of, you know, opening that folder. I think I was just as curious as Frankie would have been. You know, and also nervous because you don't know what's going to be in the folder. I I had so wanted this woman to have not wanted to give up Frankie. That was what I created in my head. It was the story that my parents had kind of always said is that, you know, your mum didn't want to give you up. It was circumstances. I'm, you know, sure she loved you. Um, but that, that kind of sugar-coated information, I didn't know if it was the truth or if it was just, you know, put to to us to make it easier for for Frankie. So when I opened the folder, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to find. So I discovered that um, Janet had, Janet Wibugera, I found the name, and I just wanted to know who this woman was and and everything about her. And this is is his birth mother? This is his birth mother. Okay. And and she was... um, over here as a Ugandan student in 62 when Uganda got independence it sent a lot of its really bright students from Uganda over to the UK to study and she ended up in Belfast and she was studying as a teacher and it told us that her her father was a pastor in Uganda 
and that um, if she had had the child, it would have been really bad for her to have gone back to Uganda with an illegitimate child. Mm -hmm. Also, the fact that the government were paying for their education, they could not get pregnant. I mean, that was one of the big stipulations, you know, they were told all these things you couldn't couldn't do. But I mean, if the government's paying for your education and then you get pregnant during your your course, you know, the term. So I believe what she did was she came to Scotland to have the child in secrecy. And then um, she went back to um, she went back to Belfast and then to Uganda. Okay. So um, having left the child and I think that it was reluctant i think she reluctantly gave up the child okay so she left so she left frankie with an with an adoption agency is that how it she happened? yeah she left him with the church of scotland okay and as far as i know this is actually another really strange thing that's happened since in the book i i've eventually managed to find out where frankie had been placed and he'd been placed in tanker hall baby's home, children's home in Conmarmac. So that information was information that was in the folder. And I went I went there with Ronnie just to see where Frankie had been placed. And um, I remember standing outside saying, I just hope the people had been kind mm. and that they'd looked after Frankie in his first 13 months. And then lo and behold, there was an article in the Daily Mail about the book and about myself. And I got a Facebook message from this woman who was her husband, his mother, was the lady who looked after the home and looked after Frankie. Oh, wow. And he actually ended up phoning me and we spoke about it. And he said he was 10 at the time. And he said he just wanted to let me know that Frankie had been really loved, so much so that his mother had actually wanted to adopt Frankie. Oh, wow. And that he remembered overhearing a conversation between him and between his mother and father that he shouldn't have been hearing and the mother was really upset saying I don't want to let Francis he was called Francis go and um, the father said but if you adopt him all the other children here are going to think you should adopt them Mm. and what's wrong with them and we're going to have so many children come through here and we can't do that we need to let them go so she was concerned about where he was going you know, and there's me all these years later. And then I get, you know, a Facebook message in, in our world of technology. These people find me and they're able to tell me that Frankie was so much loved in, in his, his early days. And they also told me what I'd always suspected and what I'd written in my first book is that she came to visit him. So she probably shouldn't have been coming to visit him from what I understand, but I think his that this man's mother bent the rules a bit and Frankie's mum actually visited him on a couple of occasions in the home. Mm-hmm. So she really did not want to give him up and which is also something that I was able to find out, um, you know, from having published the book, you know, that the mother had actually visited him, which I had, I had written fictionally, but so many things that I had actually written fictionally were truth. I mean, I had placed a fictional character at Gaza High School because I basically did a search on schools, good schools in Uganda and, you know, near Kampala and all the rest of it. And I found Gaza High School for Girls, placed her there, and it turned out that she actually went to that school. I placed <laughs> her there as a teacher. You couldn't make up half of the stuff that actually has happened. You know, it's stranger than fiction. Mm. Um, 
and, and there I was sitting at Gaza High School for girls in 2011. And she had been there in 1948. And, you know, I, I'm sitting there looking at a picture of his mother for the very first time. And I had actually written about something fictional that was actually the truth. So the journey is, is, is still unfolding all the time. There are bits and pieces of the jigsaw coming to light. But um, yeah, you, you, couldn't, you could never have predicted that uh, in a million years. Um, and then, of course, like I say, this, this boy saying to me, or this man now, it, he's saying it's my dad's 90th birthday today and I can't believe I'm talking to Francis's sister, you know, Frankie's <laughs> sister. And, you know, his father and mother were both dead and he said, I just know they would be just so happy to know that Frankie ended up in a really good family. And I can't believe you've written this book um, about his life and your life and, and all the work you're doing in Uganda. And he said, I used to push him around in a, a pram when I was 10 years of age and I just adored him. No. So, yeah, he was, Frankie was well adored and loved in his life, you know, very That's, much so. Okay. So when, when did you make your first trip to Uganda and how did that, how did that come about? Um, 2011. Okay. I had, um, I had a major agent. Um, interested in the book, not this one, that this is the true story, mm -hmm. um, but the Matoki tree. And I'd gone to London to meet with her. And she said to me, you know, I can't believe you've not been in Uganda. And I really want to see what you do with this book if you actually get to Uganda, because she wanted me to work in an edit. So I said, I've actually been trying to go to Uganda for a number of years. And I keep getting delayed and delayed and setbacks and delays. But I mean, I'm a great believer in, in um, prayer and meditation and and there was little signposts along the way that I knew despite it, I mean I was sort of saying to myself maybe somebody doesn't want me to go but it you know it just was all about the timing it was about the universe's timing and and when I actually got to Uganda that year after I'd met with the agent I was like I've, I've just got I've got to go she managed to open a few doors for me to speak to some people at the embassy and things like that and then I I I went there with Ronnie and I was honestly like a puppet. It was as if somebody had planned that entire trip from my my life, mm. from from day one, as if somehow there was, I can't think of the word, just like a divine magic about it, something. The people that I met, that the, the way I met the family. I mean, for an example, when I went to Gaza High School, um, I had an interview with the head teacher there and I mean I'm writing a fictional book at this time I'm not thinking I'm going to meet his family and I'm going to unfold this miraculous story I'm hoping that there's clues and I said to her that I um, believed that um, Pastor Wibugira who was my brother's grandfather was the, the pastor of the school in 1950 to 1960 and I'd only found that out through interviewing a missionary um, in Farnham mm -hmm. who told me um, that she believed that the grandfather was, was um, the pastor of her school and then when I was sitting there um, she kept saying I know the name Wivugera, I know the name why do I know the name Wivugera and two minutes later this woman passed by the window and she pulled her into the, the, the office and she said um, Phoebe do you not know something about the Wivugeras and she said yeah she said, they are family. I found Janet in the cupboard the other day. 
this woman was a relative. Okay. And she wasn't supposed to be there that day because it was a school holiday. She only came back to the school to pick up paperwork that she'd left behind. And I was there at that very moment. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's quite so I know confusing. Yeah, I should have probably started. The, yeah, I'm maybe not explaining it very well. But this woman, the school, it was a public holiday. The head teacher said to me, I'll have more time for you in the public holiday mm-hmm. if you want to come to the school. And I was really disappointed thinking, oh, I won't get to see the girls. But I was like, hey, any opportunity to get there and get to meet them and everything will be fine. And then this woman shows up who had just seen a picture of Janet Wivigera in the cupboard because she'd been asked that week to, I don't believe there's my batteries running, Luke, sorry. Okay, no worries. Um, I, don't, I thought I had plugged it in, it's obviously come out. This is what happens when you're live. Anyway, hopefully that's us. Um, yeah, she'd just been asked if she would um, look out the, the old girls, photographs of the old girls Okay. that very week before. So she compiled this photograph album, came across this woman, Janet Wivugira, and recognised the name because it was a relative. So she was able to then show me a picture of Frankie's mum. Okay. Um, and there from then, she was like, I know the brothers. You know, I'm in touch with the brothers and the auntie. And I was like, what? So... Within two hours, I was then sitting in the company of my brother's brother, who oh, had wow. the same name. His name's Frank, and he looks like Frankie. Oh, he's got the same name, did you say? He's got the same name. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they both get the same name, Frank. He's called Frank. Yeah. And um, then I have another brother, David. And there was another brother, Stephen, and my older brother was Stephen. Um, Unfortunately, Stephen and his family died of AIDS in the 90s. Mm. But I have um, another brother, Paul, who lives in the States, minutes from where George Floyd was murdered. Okay. And and then I have David, who's a teacher, and then I have Frank in Uganda. And it was just the most surreal experience for me to be sitting in the company of my brother's brother, 18 years after his death in Uganda. Wow. And my brother never set foot in Uganda. This was the first time I'd ever been in Uganda. And I was overwhelmed with emotion. I was extremely upset. And poor Frank was like, why is this white woman crying all over me? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, this nutter from Scotland, you know? Um, and so I had to try and explain that his brother was my brother and he lived mm. in Scotland. And... So, as much he, as he was, he wouldn't have even was he even aware? He wouldn't have been aware that he had another brother, I presume. No, well, yeah. I, I, I thought that there's no way he was going to be aware of this, and okay. I was really very nervous about this because I thought I don't want to open up Pandora's box here. I do not want to tell this family. You know, I, I was, I didn't know whether Janet was alive or dead. I had been told by Phoebe by this point that that Janet had died. Yeah, and only months, only months before uh, Frankie died. And when Frankie died, I used to say to people, maybe his mum has died and wanted him back. Mm. And, you know, it was, it is strange that his mum died and then Frankie died not that long after. But what I did discover, I mean, as much as Frank was going, oh my God, oh my God, wow, wow, wow. I cannot believe this. You know, I had a brother, you know, that 
no, I just can't believe this. He had brought all this paperwork with him and he'd brought pictures of his mum and everything. And then as the conversation kind of went on and, you know, we we're talking a lot more, he then explained to me that about 12 years previous, they had um, been told by an aunt that they had a brother in the okay. UK somewhere and that she was the last living one of the sisters. So seemingly Janet had told the sisters that she had a boy that she'd given up for adoption and left in the UK. And she said, when I die, I want the boys to be to know that they've got a brother in the UK, but there was no information to go on, nothing. Mm-hmm. And the, the three sisters decided when Janet died that they wouldn't tell the boys because they didn't really see any point in telling the boys. So they kept it a secret until the last aunt was dying. And then she was the one that was going to go to her grave with the secret. Okay. So she decided to speak to Paul, who was living in the UK at the time. He was in a, a gospel band called Limit X. They were doing quite well, and he was living in the UK. So they phoned and um, said to Paul, you know, your mum had this boy. He left in the UK. And, of course, Paul was like, no, you're lying. Mum wouldn't do that. And then then Paul thought about it and thought, well, it is a possibility. So he kind of went on a one-man crusade to try and find Frankie with no information and, of course, got nowhere. The boys in Uganda were like, you know, mum would never give up a child for adoption. This can't be true. And then for them, 12 years later, I show up out the blue and say, well, hello, it's true. And this is your brother. And I was his sister. And this was his family. And they were absolutely just as overwhelmed as I was and could not believe that I'd found them. I mean, they're very grateful now. I mean, we have, we work together in Uganda and, and we have, you know, I have these various projects and I feel really blessed that I have been able to, to, to turn Frankie's death into something really positive and, and his legacy um is is still going strong in uganda and a family that he never knew with a culture that he never knew and you know just shortly before he died he had been saying that he was interested in finding out about his family and he'd written to my dad he was living in london at the time and i have to say i think from what i understand he suffered more racism in london than he did in scotland so but i wasn't there at the time and i was living in canada he he came back to scotland not long before he died and he had just been starting to become interested in finding his family when he died. Okay. So I kind of took that torch up and, and, and eventually I found them. And I think that again, the timing of that, you know, as, as much as I might have wanted to find them earlier for whatever reason, you know, something greater knew a, a bigger plan to it. And I think they were ready. I was ready. And, um, and now, of course, with the book, you know, hopefully the timing of that is is positive as well. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a it's a super interesting story. I mean, what's your relationship like now then with his um with his siblings? Do you are, or do you know them well now and everything like that? Have you? I do. Them? Yeah. I mean, we do we do call each other family, and they, they I love it when they call me sister. At first, I was <laughs> like, mm, you kind of have to, you know, earn that. You know, and it was very different. I think, obviously, you know, that I'm this white person and there is 
that whole perception of us being really super wealthy, the Mzungo with all the money. Mm-hmm. And I think they definitely thought, oh, we've won the jackpot. You know, <laughs> we've got this rich, wealthy sister, you know. Um, she's done all this singing and all the rest of it. And, you know, anybody who lives in the arts knows what the arts is really <laughs> like, you know. It's a struggle to survive on a daily basis. But even though you might have awards or whatever else, you're still, you know, struggling to survive. But I think as time's gone on, they realise that, you know, that's that's not who I am and, and it's not what I'm about, but that I really wanted to do what I could to to help. And I noticed a gap in the education system with the arts. You know, the arts are so important mm-hmm. and they are missing in in some countries like Uganda. There's a, a, a real focus, maybe you'll know from, the, from your Nigerian upbringing, there's a lot of focus on the the three R's and, you know, getting good marks and, you know, getting a good education. I don't and even know, when you said the three R's, I was thinking, I don't even know what that stands for. Reading, writing, arithmetic. <laughs> the, like oh, the okay. big, um, yeah, maybe it's an old fashioned statement. Okay. Um, I, two of them don't even begin with R, that's was, quite funny. The, yeah, I know that, that's what they call them. That's what, that's what oh, okay, called, fair the enough. I, when you said it, I was like, Reading, Only one, writing uh, and arithmetic. I was like, that's 66% wrong right there. But okay. Yeah, um, I know it's mental, <laughs> but that's what they call it. And let me tell you, I was hopeless at the three R's. I was hopeless at, the, at, at all of that. So, um, but if you put me into any arts classes and, and, you know, drama or music and things like that, I often excelled. Mm. So my confidence would have been in the toilet if it hadn't have been for arts programs in, in schools because gotcha. I just wasn't academic. And yet all the focus is on academics in Uganda. Um, you know, and, and I think there's a slight move towards the arts, but particularly in government schools. I mean, I remember I was in one school and well, what more than one, I really, I saw there was children that just were not faring very well. Mm-hmm they were being kind of just pushed aside and they looked a bit miserable like I did at school and I could kind of identify with them. And I remember saying to a teacher, you know, what's wrong with the child? And, and she said, Oh, he's just stupid. And I remember getting called stupid at school and how it took years to kind of go over that. Really. I did. I had to work quite hard on myself at, at, um, it, it pushing that you know because the kids laugh at you and and you know I wasn't covered at school so I really recognized that in this child in particular and I said to the teacher how do you know if you put a guitar into his hand that he's not going to be a famous Ugandan guitar player or a paintbrush that he's not going to be you know Uganda's answer to Picasso uh, you know whatever yeah. and and she said, well, I don't have money for, for pencils, let alone paintbrushes. And so at that point, I think the idea was initially, initially to do a school. And it was just becoming more and more apparent that the missing link, the thing in the schools that I felt was missing was the arts. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we then decided to, to try and start an arts school where children would be introduced to all of the the different arts disciplines um and and that's that's basically what we did um but it 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 took a bit of courage i think i didn't know the first thing about starting up a charity and um and i just had to to keep pushing through a lot of fears 
because um, people are giving you their money and you're dealing with a country like Uganda. I mean, gosh, as we're finding out, I don't think it matters where there's corruption everywhere in governments, but I think, you know, it is notoriously quite bad there. And, um, you know, being linked in with the education system wouldn't be easy. And um, so I was kind of learning on my feet the whole time about how to work in the country and navigate a very complex system. Mm-hmm. It works very, very differently over there from, from how we operate. Education systems different, the rules and regulations. So we had to kind of learn, I had to learn how to navigate that. And I think it was it was good to have the, the boys as a sort of sounding board, but I mean, they didn't quite understand their, their mad red-headed Mzungu sister because they, they, they worked different. They hadn't been outside of Uganda. So there was lots of frustrations, lots of things to overcome, lots of challenges. But I think now there's a much better understanding we have of each other's cultures and, and you know, which has been great. I just find it interesting and challenging. And, and I love getting to know Africa. I love getting to know that culture. And and, um, yeah. and I, I would really love them to come here one day and, and see where Frankie grew up. That would be, mm-hmm. be great to be able to, to have that opportunity as well. So I go out there as often as I can and and see the various projects. We have a number of projects that, that we work on in Uganda, but the school has been the, the big one that um, we, we, we managed to to pull off and twinned with, with another school and um, and offer the arts. That's cool. When, when, when was the school founded? It opened in 2016. Okay, fantastic. So and how many, a, how many students have you got there now? We've got about 110 kids there at the moment. Okay. Yeah. And we hope to to do similar with the autism and disability project and and have a holistic centre there for the families to come together that are affected with um, autism and disabilities because it became really apparent we'd wanted to obviously have the most marginalised um, into our school and with the best will in the world we just weren't able to to change the myths and stigmas surrounding some of those you know kids. Mm-hmm. So we felt we really needed to start from a real grassroots level and start working with the communities and start um, sensitizing them to disabilities um, and and autism and an understanding of it rather than it just being a curse. Mm. Because a lot of them do believe it's a curse by the devil and they won't touch them. And and so at one of the schools that we work in, the director from there is a Ugandan. She had been a child soldier and she had come to the UK as a refugee. She's a social worker and she understands inclusion and disabilities and whatnot. So she's been brilliant at working with us collectively to bring about some change there. But it's it's been a struggle. But we now have some children that are helping to feed some of these children that have got disabilities and autism. Whereas before they wouldn't even touch them, they would run. Some of the kids left the school. The parents took them out of the school because that's how bad the stigma was. But she pushed through and now we're actually making great strides. They are beginning to to understand that these people have as much value as as anyone else, have as much worth as anyone else. Mm -hmm. So, but it's a difficult project. It's the most challenging project that we've had today, I would say, is, is working and it's really, I think a lot of things in, in Africa and Uganda is about working with the community. You need to get the community on your side. But we're bringing about quite a significant change in those areas. And it's a very slow 
you can't just go in and you know you have to be respectful of their customs and of of, of where they are coming from mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and be very gentle about about making those changes but we're we're um we are getting there, but what's become obvious is that we need to provide a centre for these people and then we can have some trainers and and open up that, expand it, and hopefully then have more of an outreach to other schools and um, with some of the trainers from here that we would bring and also that there are some people studying special needs in Uganda. The government is being forced to address inclusion mm. and mm. disabilities which is is a good thing so um hopefully we can bring about a bit of a change in that area as well gotcha and um so you've also got a charity which uh, has the same title as the as your latest book it's called star child yeah and that's um that's primarily based doing work in uganda is that correct yeah yeah okay. so that's that's the work we're doing the school that we've built mm-hmm. you know the women's projects that we have we do the sanitary care program program and and now the sunflower sanctuary for autism and disabilities so that's that's the um that's that's our big yeah we've we've been working in that now since since basically i got back from uganda we got charitable status in 2013 mm-hmm. and then the school was built by 2016 so we've proved that we can negotiate a, a, in a, a complex culture yeah. and one that's different and and I'm learning all the time. It's a it's a two way street. So are the boys learning about us as well, which is 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 great. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And what do you see as the as the future for that? What are you hoping to? What sort of outcomes are you hoping to achieve with the charity and even with the book and the future work? What's the message that you'd like people to to get from it? And what would you want to build from it? Well, I'm certainly hopeful that the book will give us a. a a bigger platform okay um which is would be great i mean we're very grassroots charity that has expanded and been able to prove that that we work well in uganda mm-hmm. and um i mean we built a school for sixteen thousand pounds when other charities are getting quotes of over a hundred thousand pounds oh wow so i mean i think having the, the the boys there as well and and being not afraid to ask and challenge and have questions you know i i know that they, they just see the white face and the prices go up you know so we do you know that's 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 a given so anything i do i just take the brothers along with me yeah, yeah, yeah. but but i'm also really good i've learned to say no that's one of the first things in uganda you know, <laughs> no they don't like it this white woman um it's still a patriarchal society as you probably well know but i mean and then i come along and um face a star child and uh, negotiate with all these men and they just think i'm really hard but i mean i get the the price down from a hundred thousand to sixteen thousand yeah that's a Um, big that's a big difference it's a big big difference yeah. and then you know we we negotiate all the prices and everything and i mean we're fair very fair and yeah. um but um certainly we're able to make our money go a lot further than than other charities i'm not knocking other charities but we have a a good sense of the place and a good way of working and it's been successful and i think that we've grown slowly and that's a great thing and i think we're now at a stage where we can really expand and the book has obviously come out and that's giving us a bigger platform people like yourself hopefully this gives starchild an even bigger platform 
to you know for, for people to hear about us to hear about the really incredible work that we're doing um it is quite phenomenal and there's a lot of that in the book as well so i mean the book does cover adoption race family the charity it, it kind of has all of that all yeah. of that in there why did you decide but, to yeah. go why did you decide to go with the name star child where is that from well frankie's favorite band was level 42 okay and there was a song called star child that frankie had actually asked he said to me one night we were out in a bar if anything ever happens to me the song came on the radio and he said if anything ever happens to me i want this song played at my funeral oh wow and i said oh don't be silly nothing's going to happen to you um this was only six weeks before he died wow that's crazy and i was over in scotland on vacation i was living in canada i had come over on a holiday and frankie was insistent on showing me every bar every new bar that had opened in glasgow so we went out and about on that that trip and one of the nights we were sitting in the bar and the song came on and and i i just sort of slugged it off shuff, you know sort of, don't be silly nothing's going to happen to you and so when he died i was like what was that song you know and um so star child and so at the funeral we played the song star child gotcha. and i thought really what we are doing with the school for the creative arts and and all of that is we're trying to find the star in every child mm-hmm. we want to find the worth in every child the same with the, the disability like it really that whole that whole name encompasses really what star child is about and the lyrics of the song are so pertinent it's just absolutely incredible i mean i just wept when i read the lyrics to the song and so for me the only thing i knew when i was starting the charity was that i was going to call it star child that was like the 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 starting point i knew and and it just suited frankie he was a star child he really was um and you know like i say it's just it's about finding the star in every child that's mainly what our charity tries to do Fantastic. And it sounds like you're doing great work with it. So congratulations. If people want to find out more about the charity or if people want to follow your work online, where where can they find you? Um, starchildcharity.org. They can find out information about the charity and there's links to the book on Amazon or whatever. And my own website is michaelaonline.com. Mm-hmm. So very accessible. Anybody can get in touch with me um, at all. I'm on Facebook. but I don't tend to use Twitter very much. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I'm not huge on social media, but I'm trying to get better um, with the book. So, but um, yeah, please do reach out and I hope people buy the book and and enjoy it. And it's it's in amongst all this um, angst right now, I think hopefully it shows a different side um, and the the love for a a black and white child and that, that love transcends all borders, geographical borders and even life itself. There's a continuous thread that connects us even after death. And I think the book proves that. It proves that, you know, we, we, we don't die. That energy lives on and Frankie's energy is living on. And and I, I now have a whole new Ugandan family. That's awesome. Michaela, um, loved hearing your story. And um, I hope some people will check out check out the book, check out your work online and see everything that you're doing but i think this has been a, a wonderful invite insightful summary of a lot of it thanks very much Sibby. thank you so much you're welcome you have a great day thank you you too 
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.